to Ready Rock. Hi, Ben. How you doing, Aaron? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here in probably my favorite place to listen to music and probably even to watch movies better than the Dolby Theaters at AMC. Um, thanks to you and your wizardry over here, years of building custom, unique speakers that I've never seen before. Um, do you want to tell the audience what you do and maybe your your day job and your your night job over here? Sure. Uh, to keep it simple, I'm a I'm an instructor. I'm a professor at Illinois State University. Uh, I teach in a program called Creative Technologies, and my primary interest in Creative Technologies is sound design, um, anything audio that's not music composition. So I like music production, I like recording, I like acoustics, uh, speaker design, sound design, uh, especially for animation. Um, and uh, I'm an avid game gamer. I'm not a game designer, but I'm an avid gamer, and I like to uh, work with students to apply sound to games as well. Um, so my day job is professor, uh, and the Creative Technologies program is basically where all of the fine arts intersect with computing. So think uh, creative visually, creative with sound, creative with live performance, uh, dance, and theater performance, and where they all kind of overlap and combine into computer technology. So um, my hobbies and are uh, speaker design. So what I like to do is pursue... I, I have this sort of... Um, this this place in my mind that I'm trying to I'm trying to get to, which is sound reproduced so authentically that it's the same as um, it's as it's as pure and honest and true to the recording as is is possible in in both the, like the the technical spectrum and the poetic spectrum. So that you're you're not only hearing sound accurately, but it's also like aesthetically beautiful, and um, so you can sort of see in the background. Some examples of speaker design that I've I've built through the years, and um, I'm just trying to pursue this this sort of audio nirvana that I'll never honestly reach. That you know, the, this pair that you're looking at here is probably design prototype number thirty that I've built in the last thirty years, and I, I keep sort of inching my way towards this this perfect space that I'll never get to. Um, but it's it's a passion and it's fun and it and it feeds directly into acoustics and technology and prototyping and design, and it reinforces what I do uh, as an audio uh, engineer and an audio designer, and it helps me teach students. All right, <laughs> that's a lot. Um, yeah. So aside from teaching speaker design, sound design at Illinois State University, where I also teach, um, we work together and. That's a whole nother world, but I want to focus right now on these speakers and music reproduction that comes through them. Um, being a listener of these speakers and the ones you have around your house, uh, they are the most authentic and transparent and accurate speakers I've ever heard to the point where it makes sound almost feel like it's in front of you and not coming through speakers as if it's um, existing around you. And it's very fascinating and kind of off-putting. Like when you first hear it, if you don't know, it almost sounds a little strange because you're not used to hearing sound come out of speakers like this. Mm -hmm. Nobody really is. Very few people on the planet are. Um, 
And I've listened to a lot of music on a lot of sound systems. I've never heard anything like this. I've heard electrostatic speakers, which have similar um, properties as far as dipole, but it's still very different. And um, also they have unique design to them. So they're eye candy. You know, they look Mm -hmm. appealing, which is kind of comes with the hi-fi world. They always look different from like your typical just box speaker. Speaker in a box, yeah. They always have to be a little pizzazz Mm -hmm. sprinkled on top. Um, But also the technology that goes into it and the quality, the materials, the the design, the color. And um, there's a lot of science behind it, which is cool because, you know, you think – technology you think science but then you think like art and creativity which is like your background as far as like an mfa masters of fine arts it's weird to see the worlds come together which is really cool i I am very much a believer of technology meets art and how they merge because i think you need both to have have like that nirvana so to speak to have it relevant to like a human experience exactly you do need both so do you want to go when well let's start at the beginning when did you start designing speakers or what drove that that motivation uh it's kind of a long corkscrew kind of a story but i was a i was a little kid really when i started working with sound um it's let me let me kind of say talk about two tangent things really quick so i remember as a as a really young kid i remember my grandfather who was um a band conductor he played every single instrument in an orchestra and he taught every single instrument at a small school and he was also the conductor and when he would listen to music he would go to this state where he was just on another planet he would he would literally disengage from the present and just be so focused on hear what he was hearing that it was it was just strange as a kid seeing an adult go into this different state. He'd have these big these big can headphones on, and he would just drop out. And he and I've never seen anyone so focused and engaged on anything. And that always stuck with me. And I kind of realized that my grandfather was very sensitive to what he was hearing. Um, he had he had insane hearing. Like he could hear. You could whisper in the basement. He'd be up on the second floor of his farmhouse, and and he he'd know what you were up to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he was sensitive to loud sounds, and he he processed audio more so than video. He didn't care what things looked like. He just cared what they sounded like. And in in life, and in music, and in sound reproduction. And I think I picked some of that up. And sort of the second part of the story is I was reading, um, and I can't remember where the the specific details, but it really talked about how people construct their realities, sort of like neuroscience and psychology. And it was about people who, who build and inform how to interact with their universe. Everyone kind of builds and constructs their own universe so that they understand where they are in the world and their actions make sense and their behavior makes sense and their emotions make sense. And most people do it on a visual spectrum. They, they, they store memory, they think about, and they tie to emotion um, their universe through what they see. They remember, they remember their world visually. Um, along with the other senses, but it's primarily a visual thing. And a, and a much smaller portion of people apparently construct the universe around what they hear. And that's more important to them than the visual aspects. And I started to realize as I was reading this article that I was very much sort of in that latter category. Um, a third, like, tiny minority of people constructed their world around what, the way things smelled. 
And this is sort of like they knew where they were in the world in relationships to the smells that they had and, the, and, and how they tied their emotions to, to memory. Mm. So I, I'm on the sort of like the, the larger minority of the audio spectrum and that it, I, I could talk to somebody and not remember what they look like or what they were wearing or the room that we were in, but I'll remember the sound of their voice and I'll mm-hmm. remember the acoustics of the room that we were in and whether there was a lot of background noise and if it was a highly reflective environment and if it was easy to hear them. And if I have like an emotional response that's triggered by these memories, um, I would, it, it, it would be based on something that I could recall very vividly um, as, as a sound thing. And I'm not talking about the details of like what each word was said. I can't recall that. But I can really clearly recall the acoustics and the ambience of of a space. And so those two things led me very early on to really be interested in in sound and music. Music always just, you know, for most people, music is exciting and it's entertaining, it's emotional, and and it's meaningful. Um, But for me, I always wanted music to be more than that. I wanted I wanted some sort of ideal. Even as a kid, I was always like interested in better sounding um, radios. Like little like a, a, a shitty little radio and another shitty little radio, which one sounded better and why, right? Mm-hmm. So then so then my dad was a he was sort of a a junkyard. He was a teacher, but he'd love goes to he'd love to go to junkyards and find old appliances and bring them home and repair them. And so he would bring home old TVs and radios and recorders and other electronics and speakers. And he would tear them apart. So like in my dad's workshop basement, there was a pegboard wall with hooks on it. And there was probably, you know, 30 or 40 speaker cones. And the speaker cones of all different sizes and shapes. Some were oval, some were big, some were small. Some had big magnets, some had different surrounds. And so I had all these cones. So I started to look at what speakers were and I would do things like build a box, stick a cone in a box, hook it up to, you know, like open up a tape recorder and a little built-in amplifier powering a little internal speaker and a tape recorder. I just, I just shunt a wire out of it and run it to a speaker cone in a box that I made. And so I started really young. My dad gave me enough like electronics skills to do basic soldering and enough carpentry skills to cut wood and build boxes um, so I was doing that at the age of like six, seven, eight, you know, and I'd already built like by the time I was like eight years old, I had this speaker that was a pyramid. It was fat at the bottom. It got narrow at the top. It had like a a big paper cone, 12 inch, you know, wide frequency response woofer pulled out of a jukebox and then a smaller driver and then a little tiny driver. And I just wired them all up together without crossovers and ran them through a radio amplifier. And that was my, you know, first major speaker build. And, um, and every... Did you, sorry to cut you off, did you know anything about impedance? No, nothing. nothing, Crossovers? Nothing. I I knew that this little, that these terminals inside a circuit board of a radio had a wire coming out of it going to a speaker. Mm -hmm. So I just extended that wire and ran it to another speaker. Mm -hmm. And then my dad showed me how you could hook up cones you could hook up speakers. You could hook up more than one cone. You could just daisy chain the wire to mm-hmm. more and more. He wasn't even thinking this is a parallel or, or a series connection right. with speakers. He was just doing it. You know, at one point, I had a in, a in a basement, in my basement, when I was probably a 
12, 13, I, I hung a, a I, I wire hooked a speaker cone about every three feet all the way around the room so that there was everywhere you were, there was a speaker cone floating in the air all the way around the room. And I just daisy chained a single, you know, two conductor wire to all of those back to a tape recorder that had a little tiny transistor amplifier in it. And I, I, I hit play on the, on the tape and it played for all of about 30 seconds and the whole room was filled with sound, not good sound, but it was just all the cones were working each with their different behaviors and frequency responses. Uh, and then the, the little, the little cassette player burned up the thing. Just, it just stopped and smoke started to come out of it in in a, unclimactic kind of way it wasn't yeah. even a you know, it wasn't even a grand blowout it just kind of like <laughs> and i just died um and that's when i was like oh so you can't hook up too many cones to an amplifier or you'll toast it right and um through the years i started to you know do things like read and research electronics and, and basic circuits and and i started to get interested um in that and then I also I, I met a really important person in my life. Uh, his name is Rob, and he was he was a, the the father of a good friend in the neighborhood. And Rob was the first audiophile I've ever met. He was a guy who cared more about sound than just let's just get any old set of speakers and stick them anywhere in a room and hook them up any which way and hit play and listen as long as you could hear it and it was loud enough, it was good enough. He was actually trying to pursue good sound. Um, he, so he didn't build his own stuff, but he knew enough to buy quality amplifiers, quality preamps. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I'd go over to my friend Eric's house. His dad, Rob, would have a set of, uh, he had a set of Allison One speakers, which are these really cool sort of, if you looked at them from above, they're a triangle and they sat up against a wall. And on each plane coming, on each plane coming out of the speaker in this vertical triangle, there was two woofers at the bottom, two mid ranges in the middle, and two tweeters above that, and they would fire out in in, in 180 degrees. And two of those up against the wall would just throw sound in the room everywhere, and it was just this huge sound that was, you know, hooked up to quality equipment and quality sources. He had these Thorin turntables, and 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 he really cared and. When you'd listen to music with him, it wasn't casual. It was like a thing. Come on over. Let's listen to music. Sit down. Don't talk. Listen to some music. What does it sound like, right? And he got me interested in this sort of audiophile um, pursuit of good sound. So I wasn't just playing with sound. I was suddenly more interested in this definition of an ideal sound. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what's what got me started and then, you know, exposure to, to, to visiting Rob and his house and his evolution of equipment over the years. He's, been a, he's still a friend now. I still go up to Wisconsin and hang out with him uh, 45 years later and listen to his magnificent audio system in this, in this beautiful room that's just dedicated to audio. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, you know, I do that once a year with my whole family. We go up and spend time up in Wisconsin and, and uh, sort of... He taught me stuff. He had magazines like uh, audiophile kinds of magazines with articles, and I would read those articles. And um, that got me going until the internet, 
And then once you had access to the internet, then you had access to just un unbelievable amounts of information. Mm -hmm. And everything that I've done since then has been self-study um, and iteration, prototype, what does it sound like, uh, where can it be improved, why, why, why are there limitations, what are the limitations, how to overcome the limitations, build another thing. Evaluate, measure, calib—you know—calibrate, measure, evaluate, live with it, and just continual iteration through the year. So every year or so, um, I I try to build something new, and sometimes it's a it's a mutation of something I just previously built. Sometimes it's like an all new direction, all new design from scratch. So that's that's kind of that's a long kind of multi-interwoven story about why I'm interested in sound. Mm -hmm. um, but I think going back to the original thing I was talking about, just the fact that audio helps me sort of construct my universe. Like I I I just think about the world through how it sounds. I, I like people based on the way they speak and the tone of their voice. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I I don't it's it's hard to explain, but I, I sound think matters. I get it. it means it means something to me more so than just is that is do I like that song? Is the music cool? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I don't know where I fall on that spectrum, but I can relate in in ways. Um, I feel like more than most can being obsessed with music, having an intention behind it, mm -hmm. and um, listening with trying to find a value in what's coming at you. Not just in the lyrics, not just in the production, but everything, how it all comes together, the timbre, the tones, the placement, the stereo uh, field that, in which it's coming out of. And yeah, I, I think you can tell within the space you're in, um, the types of speakers, how it charges the room, how it doesn't, where are you placed, are you off to the side, are you in the center? There's a lot of factors when it comes to listening to music. Um, so when did, did you study anything that has to do with sound in, in college in your undergrad no i'm, I'm in, I, this is a crazy this is a crazy part i'm entirely self-taught mm -hmm. um but i i got to college at at an undergraduate level um and i was an electrical engineer i, I was a undeclared and then an electrical engineer and that that took about two years to kind of go through that process and um i just i just smashed face first into the math and and realized that it wasn't for me. So uh, even though speaker design sounds technical, my my pursuit of it has has not been um, from a high end mathematical modeling perspective, where you prototype something based on assumptions on f that you derive from the math. Yeah. Um, so I I failed out of speaker uh, out of um, electrical engineering not. Class-wise, I, I, my grades were fine, but I, I realized that I, I wasn't going to make it in this field. Mm -hmm. It was too dense. Um, so I also used to build houses. Uh, when I got out of high school, I was a carpenter, a, gen, a general contractor, a framer, and roofer. And I would, I'd build, you know, I'd, I'd show up, there'd be, all the concrete would be poured, the foundation was poured. I'd be, I'd be one of the folks that would, that would build a skeleton, you know, skin it, put a roof on it, and then move on to the next house. That's probably why we get along so much, Aaron. Yeah, 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 maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, so I, when I was an undergrad, uh, three years in, 
undeclared still because I was no longer electrical engineering major. Uh, there was a job for uh, a job posting, a student job posting for a theater scene shop carpenter. And they were literally building an actual house on the stage so that you'd see the front of the house and some acts, and then it would rotate in a giant turntable, and then you'd see the inside of the house. And they needed actual carpenters who were using actual like house building techniques as opposed to scenic carpenters doing the more traditional um, uh, like uh, flats, you know, muslin flats and, yeah. and thinner framing and jacks and things like that. So I applied, got the job. Was around theater people, and suddenly I was doing follow spot, and then suddenly I was in a space where art was happening on the live stage, and I had these carpentry skills and an interest in sound. And at that point, by the time I was a, uh, by the time I was in college, I was doing some pretty sophisticated audio design um, in terms of understanding uh, sound systems and being able to set up sound systems for like live reinforcement and bands and understanding speakers. And I was also able to create and construct audio at that point. I'd, I was into sound enough that I was able to build content. Mm -hmm. And, um, right around the time I got interested in sound or interested in theater, there was a big explosion in the theater world where they were just really interested in much more, um, sophisticated and complex sound designs suddenly you know this is this is in the late 80s early 90s where like college most college level theater was suddenly exploring sound um automated sound in particular and computer computer uh executed sound designs uh that were starting to approach the complex the complexity of the lighting designs and uh, I was at SIU Edwardsville, and no, there wasn't sound design classes. And if if sound happened, it was just because someone happened to try it. For the so, I suddenly found myself doing sound designs for theater productions, building live audio systems, and and cueing playback systems for for the stage. Which university is this? Uh, SI Southern Illinois University at Edwardsville. Okay. And I did a whole bunch of sound design work. And then um, I graduated uh, my undergrad uh, with with extensive skills as the primary student in in their design production program, having done a lot of audio work, even though there was no sound curriculum and no mm -hmm. professors really taught it. So, what was your official? What was your official good degree in? It was a BFA in theater production. Okay. So. Um, you know, I, I did some lighting design, I did some costume design, I did tons of stage carpentry. I was a stage manager, I was a fall spot operator. So I was doing all the other stuff, but on just about every show I could get my hands on, I was also the primary sound person. Hmm. And that that's a combination of designing content, um, cueing content, executing the content during the productions, and building the audio systems to to convey your design to the audience the way you wanted it conveyed. It's not just put a speaker and blow sound through it. It's where are the speakers? Are they hidden? Are they seen? Are you doing surround sound? Is it coming from above? Is it is the sound coming from a prop? Um, when that phone's ringing on stage, is it the phone that's ringing or is there a speaker buried somewhere nearby that's creating location? You know, so I was having to build audio systems that would be able to do that kind of stuff. So suddenly I found myself doing a lot of acoustics and live performance um, audio work across the spectrum. Um, and then I graduated at my undergrad and I was simply like, I have no idea 
what I'm going to do from here. So why not? go get a master's degree, you know, and that's not a great reason to get a master's degree, <laughs> but I didn't, I, you know, I didn't know what to do beyond just keep going. So I applied, um, to a couple universities. I got the best offer from Southern Illinois university in Carbondale. And when I got down there, they didn't have an audio, um, any audio classes or sound design faculty or anything. Uh, they had some old equipment and that was it. And what was the degree you applied for? Uh, an MFA in technical direction. Okay. So I had enough skills in theater. I was sort of a jack of all trades, design production person who could also build an engineer structure, mm-hmm. you know, like rigging and, and metalwork and woodwork and, and, and building things that were safe, essentially, but also an understanding of all the other design areas and all the other um, kinds of crews and all the elements that go into producing theater that's not being an actor or director. Mm-hmm. So technical direct, a degree in technical direction kind of manages all that. But when I was down there, they knew from my portfolio that I had all this sound design experience. So, so they, they had me start teaching sound design classes. So as a, as a master's student, they let me basically write curriculum and start to integrate audio courses into their design production. And I found myself teaching um, undergraduates sound design for theater, even though I had no formal training in it and I just just did it through experience, right? Mm -hmm. But at that point, I'd been thinking about sound all my life. I'd been thinking about audio systems and building sound and what is good sound and, and pursuing this sort of like ideal kind of experience and uh you just you learn by doing and i was i was good enough for them and the faculty i guess liked what they were hearing i guess and the students were taking the classes and people were treating me like i was an instructor and they were a student and that was weird uh (laughs) and then i built up over three years of an mfa um a track record for writing sound curriculum and teaching sound curriculum and then i got a job uh, right after that at Illinois State University was my first actual job, and I was hired uh, to uh, Illinois State University wanted to build a sound design program. They were right at that point. This is uh, 99, and they were looking for someone who could both be like production supervision and TD, do TD work and build a sound design program. So I, I had all the credentials and teaching experience and the terminal degree at that point. So I went into Illinois State University. They're, they hired by the School of Theater and Dance on uh, non-tenure track, sort of um, uh, an annual, you know, like a yearly contract. You never quite know each year. <laughs> Sounds whether, all too familiar. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, you know, with and within two years, they had a, a full set of sound classes on the books that their design production students could take. I had a dozen students that were at SIU or Illinois State University specifically uh, with an interest in sound design. It only took two years to sort of like recruit and bring that many kids in. So by the start of the third year, there, there was a, a cohort of, of students that were interested in, in sound design. Mm-hmm. And uh, the whole time I'm doing that, I'm also kind of working behind the scenes. Like every theater I've ever been in, I've built custom speakers into the physical space custom um 
customs, big center channels, their custom uh, wall mounts, or in one in one theater, they they built these faux panels on either side of the proscenium arches, and then we just built like these these really tall like open baffle speakers built in, and sort of made it look like like the proscenium arch. Um, and each space, you know, theater theater is a poor is a poor art. There's not a lot of money there, and when and oftentimes you get into a space and they have old old systems. And when you look at pricing new professional equipment, like especially like pro audio equipment, it's oftentimes out of the budget of theater production programs. But if you then say, you know what, if you just buy the parts, I can build it and have it sound better than the professional gear and have it be one-tenth the price, then suddenly they're interested. Yeah. Um, so I got to build a lot of custom like pro audio like installations into physical, larger physical spaces. So I, I, at that stage, I was learning the difference between like the the needs and demands of home audio versus the needs and demands of of pro audio and and w- where they're different I, it, 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 a lot of people can't sort of separate those two those two niches within audio but they they have th- there's different functionality and 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 different sort of aesthetic goals uh, and just different classifications of drivers and cl- and classifications of amplification and um, signal processing all that kind of stuff and. And what I do now is kind of a hybrid. Like when I when I build like my ideal home audio, I'm using a lot of like pro audio sensibilities that you don't usually find in the in audiophile circles where everyone's like a hyper purist. They want you know the the fewest things in the signal path and the absolute best components with the lowest noise, and and you get what you get. And I'm I'm more of a add additional signal processing and calibrate. You know, give me the tools to adjust. Frequency response, crossover, slopes, uh, uh, EQ, EQ the daylights out of thing, time and delay, and all that kind of stuff, and and let me really dial it in. And I, I do that in a home audio environment a lot more than you typically see. Most people just mm-hmm. try to buy the best set of speakers that they could possibly afford, and hope that the speakers do everything. Just when you send it a raw signal, so yeah, the speakers are a component that should be important, but there's a lot of other elements. That come to play. It's not just the speaker that needs to be good. Um, do you want to elaborate for those listening? Frequency crossover and what you meant by that, and the slopes. Well, um, put in the layman's terms. Yeah. So it's it starts off with a transducer, and a transducer is is a simple is a complicated word for any speaker driver, whether it's a tweeter for high frequencies or something mid-sized that reproduces mid-range or something big that produces bass. So there's woofers, mid-ranges, and tweeters, mm-hmm. right? And all the various iterations of those those classifications of drivers. No single cone or driver can reproduce the deepest bass through the highest treble. It's just beyond the physics right now. We just don't have the technology for something to convincingly go above human hearing and convincingly get below human hearing and be efficient and be loud and be without distortion across so so to get to get a good set of speakers you need multiple drivers that some tackle lower frequencies some tackle tackle higher frequencies uh and at least a minimum of two drivers right Mm -hmm. and a crossover is a circuit um that sends the right frequencies to the right driver so it sends like you know middle mid-range on down through the bass to a woofer and middle mid-range on up 
through the treble to a tweeter, perhaps. And if you get the crossover right, it pairs a tweeter with a woofer, and suddenly you have two drivers that can go from the highest treble down to the, the lowest bass that the drivers are capable of, and the crossover controls that. And which frequency, how loud it's sending a signal to each of the drivers, uh, the slope of the, the cutoff, in other words, does it get to a certain point and then just completely cut off the audio like a brick wall? Anything below that doesn't get to the tweeter and anything above that crossover uh, doesn't get to the woofer, right? That kind of a thing. So you can adjust the slopes and the crossover point and the volumes going. But once you get to that point, then there's there's still so much more. There's the time alignment. Like is the, is the woofer and the tweeter, are they are they working in, in concert with each other in phase? Are the are the drivers moving at that, you know, near that crossover point in a in in the same point in time so that across the crossover you have a coherent bridge? Um, uh, is each driver reproducing sound in a flat, honest way, or are they biasing certain frequencies and and uh, lacking in other frequencies. And then you need things like EQs where you can go in and you can boost what's missing and you can cut what's too strong um, so that you're you're trying to get this sound that's neither adding or subtracting from any pitch that's in the original recording. Um, so that's what I mean by signal processing is the ability to adjust crossovers and the ability to adjust EQing and the ability to adjust time alignment um, maybe put safety nets in a signal path like limiters so that if you get too loud, if you send too much signal to a certain driver, instead of blowing it up, it's something will kick in and just not let you get any louder um, if you're concerned about that. So there, th those are kinds of things that you can do. That, that's mostly a pro audio kind of a sensibility. Um, and home audio, all of that circuitry that does the crossovers and maybe some maybe some EQ compensation, it's built into the speaker and it's fixed. You can't adjust it. You just, you know, you, you buy a box, it's got a woofer and a tweeter in there. There's a little circuit in there that does everything. And you live with, you live with it. You put it in your room, you run, you run sound from your receiver, your amplifier to it, and you get what you get. Whereas I like all of that signal processing to be outboard where I can dial it in. I can get a speaker in a room. I can adjust the crossover points. I can bring out frequencies that are missing and I can adjust it based on what the speaker is doing in the room. And um, for those listening, that's very important to know your room size, shape, height, material, um, depth, and even like, I guess, yeah, material what the walls are made out of and, and, and the floor, mostly carpet, um, interacts with the speakers and even what the speakers are made out of. So it's really important to have that ability actually to be able to attenuate things or boost things based on what space you're in because a speaker is a very it's an acoustic item it's an, an acoustic machine you know and so in a room enunciates things or it takes away things it it can mess with frequencies in many ways so to be able to have that uh, to have a variety to choose from is very beneficial, but when you have a speaker that's fixed, you're kind of stuck with that. You don't yeah. get a decision. Yeah, that what, what you just said is the key to just about everything that I do as a speaker designer um, and why a lot of what I do as a speaker designer is, is sort of different than the norm. Um, so the, the first thing, the, the, the first thing, I, this, I'm going to go on a long on a long spiel here. Do it. But the, the, <laughs> the first thing is, you know, this idea of, 
audio file is there's this you know you've heard the term hi-fi mm -hmm. which is short for high fidelity and fidelity is is important here fidelity is to remain true to right so if you if if you're faithful in your pursuit of audio what you're really trying to do is just reproduce the recording the way it's intended. Mm -hmm. So there, whatever is on that recording, whether it's a digital file or it's a CD or it's a, it's something on a tape or it's it's, it's vinyl. vinyl, whatever, whatever is there, by the time you hear it with your ears, you know, you have your source, it goes through audio electronics, it comes out speakers, it's impacted by the room you're in, and then you hear it. And you're the last part of this audio chain. And what you really want to do is you want the source which is sort of like your text that you need to be faithful to. And then you have your perception of that text as you hear it, right? And you don't want the words to change between what the source is and what you're hearing. And um, setting up your electronics wrong can change that. Setting up your speakers wrong can change that. And then the room you're in can change that, right? So there's, all, there's these, these things between the source and the perception of hearing it that can take you out of high fidelity mm -hmm. and take you into sound, not what the original audio sounded like. Even the file can, a wave. E yeah, even the, even the actual file. You know, like there's the actual recording, and then that recording can be captured in a digital file where just the way you, the way you save that final file, the format of it, the sampling rate, and the, the bit depth of it, all, all that kind of, the number of channels, all that kind of thing can can steer you away from the original sound of the original art. Think of this as, you know, a, a piece of art that was created and you're experiencing it. So imagine a painter painting something and then you take a photograph of that painting and then you see the photograph, right? If the photograph of that painting skewed the colors or um, changed the contrast or scaled it in a way where you saw it in a completely different scale, you don't, you're not seeing the original painting you're seeing some sort of highly biased, unfaithful representation of that, you know? And, and mm -hmm. audio is the same way. But in my mind, much more complex. Um, so to kind of get back to it, there's this, there's this relentless pursuit of the faithfulness. And, and if you just take any signal, no matter how pure, and you send it to a set of speakers, just putting that same speaker which may be perfect in one room, moving it a few feet in that room changes the acoustics and the way this, the room is interacting with that speaker and suddenly your sound is different. Or putting that speaker in a completely different room, you have a wildly different sound, right? So it's not just how good is your speakers, but it's this relationship between the speaker and the room. And what I realized early on is that anyone really can, with very little skill, can build a box by quality drivers, know enough about crossovers to, to, to have it play a full range of frequencies without distortion, it can go loud and have lots of bass. And that's 99% of the world out there that's listening to high-end speakers and getting like a, a, a high-end audio experience. They're just hearing cones in a box reproduced loudly without distortion that has plenty of bass. And they're perfectly happy with it but what's really happening is the room is biasing the sound so what you're what you're really getting is a speaker 
that's charging the room, bouncing sound all over the room. So you're hearing some direct sound from the speaker and a ton of reflective sound from your room, and that combined sound is what you hear. It may sound good, but it's it's not the original. It's not the acoustics of the original space. So here's here's two examples. Imagine recording an acoustic guitarist who's singing in a nightclub. No, in a coffee shop a small coffee shop on a small stage, and then having that recorded perfectly, playing that back through a perfect set of speakers in a cathedral, right? So you're in the cathedral listening to the playback of this recording. So that sound is going to bounce all over the cathedral, and you're going to hear the cathedral acoustics stamped onto the original acoustics of the recording. So it's no longer an intimate coffee shop. It's a coffee shop sound being um, modified by the cathedral. And now think of, it, think of something different. Imagine a recording of a choir in a cathedral that captured all the acoustics of a cathedral, and then you played it back in your basement with cinder block walls and a concrete floor and, and, and an unfinished ceiling, and you, you basically have like a parking garage-style echo coming out of your basement and you're playing the cathedral and then all the acoustics and reverb and reflection of that recording are then in your basement bouncing around this much smaller room where all the acoustics of that basement are stamped on top of it and then you hear it right so in both circumstances what you hear is nothing like the original source and you've got this really inherent problem is how do you build speakers that A, have the fidelity and capability of reproducing the original recording without distortion, and then B, how do those speakers pretty much completely ignore the room you're in, so when you listen to those speakers, you're getting the direct sound out of the speakers, but none of the reflective information of the room. Why don't you tell us how you do that, Aaron? Well, um, (laughs) so... To, to start with, think, think of, think of a, a speaker box in a room, right? Most speaker boxes are described as monopole, and monopole basically means they, they, they by and large, kick sound out in all directions, right? They're mm-hmm. even, you know, bass for sure, tre- the higher you get in the treble, it becomes a little more directional, but for the most part, they're designed to kind of just kick sound out wide and broad, which means that if you're, you know, if, if you have a, a normal living room and you have speakers that are eight feet apart, and you're sitting eight feet away, you create like an equilateral triangle that's you know eight feet by eight feet by eight feet, and, and the th- two speakers are on two points, and you're the third point of that triangle. Um, in a room like that with normal speakers, you're going to get about 50% speaker and about 50% bounce, mm-hmm. which means that half of what you hear is your room bouncing sound around. Yeah. Now... And that's because sound is coming out of the speaker. It's, it's bouncing off the floor, the ceiling, the side walls, the back wall, and the front wall. So there are six planes in your typical box or rectangular room that are reflecting sound, right? That's problematic. Um, so there happens to be a kind of, you know, my, my, my good friend Rob, who I talked about earlier, uh, he, he bought a set of speakers called... Uh, Maggie's Magna Planars, the brand, and these these speakers were kind of unique, and they were essentially a think just think of a a board, think of a rectangle like two feet wide and six feet tall, and the whole surface 
of this rectangle would vibrate. It was like one giant membrane. It didn't move a lot, right? It wasn't like a woofer where you can see the woofer kind of like chugging back and forth, you know, sweeping tons of air. But it, it was a vibrating membrane that was rectangular in shape. It had a little ribbon that, you know, top to bottom for the, for the highs. And then the other panel next to it was a mid, a mid range on down panel. And, uh, it's called open baffle, which is another way of saying no box. It's just a board, or it's also called dipole. Um, and dipole essentially is the characteristic and how sound comes out of it. So it's, you're not going to really see this on the camera that much, but you know, speaker cone moves forward, it moves backwards. So sound, if, if you have two sounds moving at the same time, one's going forward, one's coming backwards, and they're coming from two different locations, and they're identical in time, they're reinforcing each other, and it yeah. gets louder. If one, spe if one is moving backwards while the other one's moving forwards, then they're canceling each other. The energy of one sound wave is being canceled by the energy of another sound wave. This pressure is offset by this vacuum. You know, when I push towards your face, you know, if this is a speaker cone, your ear feels pressure. And when I move away from your face, your ear feels vacuum. And it makes your eardrum move in and out. Mm -hmm. And if I do this, you're getting twice the surface area. But if I do this, they're canceling each other out, right? Mm -hmm. So if you, if you put a speaker cone in a box, you only hear what's coming in front of the speaker because the box is absorbing the back of the cone, mm -hmm. right? So you only hear the front wave. If you take the box away, sound in front of the speaker is pressurized, but since you just basically, you know, build, you know, you cut a board, cut a circle on a board, put a cone in that, in that, in that board. In front of it, there's pressure. Behind it, there's vacuum, right? So the cone moves towards you. Behind it, you, you're out of phase with in front of it. What ends up happening is the energy in front of this board wraps around, connects with the energy behind the board. They're out of phase, and you get cancellation. So in essence, you've got this board. Everything in front of it is sound energy. Everything behind it is sound energy. Everything off axis, which is above, below, and to the sides of it, is cancellation. So as the cone moves back and forth in this, in this open baffle board configuration, what it effectively does is it cancels sound above, below, and to the sides, and it only allows sound to come out in a, in a, in a ball shape in front and a sound in a ball shape at back. And what that essentially means is you've got sound going in two directions instead of sound going in six directions. You know, if you're in a room, you've got ceiling, floor, sidewalls, front and back wall. And a normal box is bouncing sound off of all those walls. Well, mm -hmm. an open baffle speaker, these, mag these Maggies, these Magna Planar speakers, were um, instead of six planes of reflection, you only had two planes of reflection. It essentially ignored the sidewalls, the floor, and the ceiling. Anything off axis, you could, you could walk up to the side of the speaker and the sound would essentially drop out. And mm -hmm. then you would walk behind the speaker and you would hear it again. You'd walk in front of the speaker, you'd hear it again. And you'd walk you'd be between the two speakers and you'd be in this place where the sound just got really faint. And it, it, was, it, it was really strange. And it's just out of phase sound canceling off axis, right? Mm -hmm. So a speaker like that, instead of bouncing off of six surfaces, is bouncing off of 
uh, two surfaces. Mm -hmm. So I said the original box speaker is about 50% original sound straight out of the speaker and about 50% reflective sound. Well, you set up a dipole system properly and you can get as good as like 90% direct sound, 10% room. Mm -hmm. And once you, once you drop the room down to that minimal amount, then just a little bit more uh, sound absorption, like some sound panels on the sidewall, some carpet, right. maybe a good ceiling that's got a high NRC value that's absorbing sound. A lot of acoustic reinforcement yeah. is blocking the sound. Yeah, so some some absorption, not to the point where you're killing the room. You know, you don't need to put like um, egg crate foam on every surface, but if you have a, not, a generally dull room that's not overly reflective, plus a set of dipole speakers, then you're getting this. You're at this point where you 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 hear the sound that's in front, and the interesting thing about the sound that's behind the speaker is it travels a short distance, bounces off that wall, and and comes back at you, and it's just tiny bit out of it's a tiny bit behind the 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 front, and it's it's so close in time that it doesn't really bother you. You don't feel like you're getting a reflection off the back wall. It just kind of sounds mm -hmm. like like a, a single sound. Why not have the room be? completely covered in acoustic foam you can do that but at some point you kill you you take the life out of the room like if the room has no presence at all like at this point you're starting to approach this theoretical anechoic chamber, chamber yeah. behavior and anechoic chambers are disturbing if you've ever if you've ever been in one <laughs> yeah um, you can be six feet like we're talking six feet away from each other now in a room that has some reflection, and you sound warm to me, but you still sound present. If we were in an anechoic chamber, uh, anechoic, no reflection, right? That's the definition of anechoic. Um, you, you, you sound like a, a person six feet away from you will sound like they're in a crypt six feet under, you know, like, like you're talking to dead mm -hmm. people. Especially if they turn away from you. Yeah, it's if very they turn weird. away. Yeah, if I turn my mouth away from you in an anechoic chamber, there's nothing bouncing what's coming yeah. out of my mouth back to you, right? If you turn, I've been in one before, and if you turn away from each other, mm -hmm. face away from each other and you, speak, you can't. You hear like this weird just rumble, anything low enough to diffract yeah, around. Like that's around, it. Yeah, and they're disturbing. Anechoic chambers, <laughs> yeah. you, uh, they get, make you anxious. You know, like, another. here's an interesting thing. Uh, sound, uh, you, you know, what, give, give me, give me two definitions for volume. Two definitions for volume? Yeah, like a unit of measurement for volume. Like a decibel? A decibel. Uh, but, you know, if you're talking about volume, you can talk about it as loudness. You can talk about it as volume. But there's a third term uh, called sound pressure level, SPL, yeah, sound yeah. pressure level, right? Yeah. And sound pressure level is exactly that. It's pressure. When you're in a room, you are, even a, even a relatively quiet, silent room, there is a certain amount of sound present that is pushing in on you from all directions. And you may tune it out. You may not pay attention to it. But, you know, any of you listening to this, podcast hit pause tell everyone around you to shut up turn off your stereo or whatever other media that's playing and just listen to the space you're in and you'll very quickly realize there's a lot of sound happening even in a completely silent room even in an, even in a house that has the fuse the the breaker box shut off and there is nothing going on you are still feeling you are still getting a certain amount of sound pushing in on you, even if it's just like the the Brownian motion of molecules vibrating in the air. You're you're literally surrounded by a certain amount of pressure yeah. acoustically, and when that goes away, you feel naked and exposed, and it's very upsetting. And you you put someone 
you remove the stimulus of all audio, like in an anechoic chamber uh, with silence, and y- you can you can hear your heart beating. You move your elbow, and your elbow's like, yeah. You can you feel can, the blood flow through. You, you yeah, can hear it. everything yeah. Be, everything internal becomes the only source of sound, and you can hear like. You know, like your stomach goes, yeah. and it makes like dinosaur noises, and it's upsetting. I've even heard people say, I haven't been in one long enough or quiet enough to where I've heard people say you start to hear your neurons firing. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know about that. that that's probably an exaggeration. What, <laughs> yeah. they're, what they're hearing is the the byproduct of a lot of anxiety, <laughs> yeah. right? Your mind And going it's going to manifest in whatever way it happens. So uh, you can, so back to, back to the question, why, why kill a room? Mm-hmm. When you when you when you bring a room down to that extent, it loses all of its passion. It's hard to explain. <laughs> yeah. But when you're listening to sound in that room, everything sounds dead. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a if you're recording, this, that's one thing. If you want to record in an environment where there's no room interaction at all, um, a lot of foam. And sound deadening can, in particular, kill the mid-range and treble and give you a very dead room. It's really hard to kill bass reflection because it just cuts through foam and bounces off the foundation and comes back at you. But you can really make a room sound pretty dry. And that's okay for recording. But if you're listening to music, um, two things happen. Sound becomes lifeless. And it takes a lot more volume to get the speakers loud enough so that it's pleasing to listen to, right? So with no room reinforcement whatsoever, you're, you're left with this frustrating, dry, passionless, um, hard to tolerate thing. So so killing the room is is not a solution. I've tried. Yeah. You know, I, I went th- I went down that path, and um, you need a balance. You need something that's warm. Mm-hmm. And if the room is warm, and then you add to that a set of dipole open baffle speakers that aren't reflecting sound off off four of the six planes, then what you get is a room that still sounds good listening to music that is not activated by room reflection. And that's super important because remember, you've got source, you've got electronics, you've got speaker, you've got room acoustics, and you've got listener. If you can take room acoustics out of that chain then suddenly you're down to, um, you know, the, the source and the listener don't change. Whatever the source is, it is. And whatever the listener is, you are. But you can then deal with the electronics and speakers and make sure that they're reproducing sound as accurately as possible. Mm-hmm. And then you get that played back into a room. And then suddenly the, the, the physical acoustics of the room have no bias on what you're listening to. So one of the things I like about the, the kind of speakers that I like to build is that they create this this reality, this cognitive dissonance. What you talked about is a little off-putting. What you meant by that, you know, at first it's off-putting. What you meant by that is your eyes see that you're in one acoustic space and your ears hear that you're in a different acoustic space. You so, meant by when I said, like, when you first listen to yeah, speakers. Yeah, when you first, it's a strange it's experience. It's, it's strange. It's a strange experience. So, you know, I'm, I'm in my basement room. It's got, you know, a seven and a half foot. It's got a fairly low ceiling. It's uh, 15 feet wide and 20 feet deep, right? It, if you shut your eyes, you'd be convinced you're in a cathedral. If I was getting like a, you know, Takata and Fugue Bach, um, well-recorded in a, in a cathedral environment. The acoustics are there in the recording, 
and and it gets to you, and then suddenly your brain is telling you, uh, sound wise, you shut your eyes. I'm I'm in a cathedral, but your eyes are telling you no, you're not. You're in this the space. So what your eyes see and what your ears are telling your brain, there's there's a dissonance, and mm-hmm. and that's that can be strange. So you have to, you know, I I find. And, and a lot of people do this anyways, but I find that it's easier to listen to my speakers with less um, listener fatigue uh, in the dark with, you know, so that you're not, you're not spending a lot of time focusing on what you see. Yeah. And, and that, that helps. So um, Closing but, your eyes helps a lot. It helps. So, you know, getting the room out of the signal path is step one. And, and if you can do that with a good set of speakers, then you're halfway there. Step two is making sure that you're creating something that has the, the, the vibrating surface area to be efficient, to get loud enough and have like dynamic range and attacks like transient response without distortion. And for that, you need a lot of vibrating surface area. You can't just have a couple of small drivers because they'll very quickly run into inherent limits of, of physics, mm-hmm. right? So like the, the speaker behind you or to your side, that, that ribbon is 50 inches tall. That entire ribbon is two and a quarter inches wide by 50 inches tall. That's, that's 125 square inches of vibrating treble, you know, all the all the highs come out of that ribbon. Whereas a traditional speaker might be one or a, two. A traditional speaker might have a one-inch dome. Yeah. And a one-inch dome is a circle that's actually about three-quarters of a square inch. So so that speaker has, you know, a, a mechanical advantage of 100 times plus more surface area vibrating in the treble. Mm-hmm. And that couples with the air much more efficiently, for instance, than a small driver. The small driver would have to work 100 times as hard to move as much air in the treble as something like that can, right? And that column of woofers, it, it looks ridiculous. It looks like it looks like, um, it, like American masculinity uh, syndrome gone too far. <laughs> but what it, what it really is, is it's creating, it's not an attempt to reproduce prodigious amounts of volume or prodigious amounts of bass. It's an attempt to create enough moving surface area where in the base, where you need a lot more surface area and physics to match the treble, you know, uh, you know, like it, it, in the treble, you might need three percent of the surface area that you that then you need in the base to re, to recreate the same volumes, depending on frequency. Like right. at at the lowest spectrum of of pitch that a human can hear, you need so much more surface area to reproduce those volume to reproduce those frequencies at volume than you do in the high treble which requires so much less surface area so something like that is just an attempt to create enough surface area so that even though i'm only using maybe one to five percent of the total output potential of that much woofer everything it does it does effortlessly with unlimited dynamics so like if a if someone hits like the toms on a on a on a drum kit with a complete, a completely uncompressed signal that's a very high dynamic range, it can reproduce the physical impact of being next to like a live drum kit. Yeah, and, and it, it feels like that. And it feels like that. Yeah, it really feels like you're wa- like listening to something live if you close your eyes. Right. Right. Yeah. So you know. Uh, so, like I said, if if you can get the room out of the signal path, and then then you're focused on 
what speaker can I build that has the surface area to, to deal with attack and sustain of all pitches from the highest highs to the lowest lows. So that's, that's something that can do that. And then signal processing between your source and each one of those sets of drivers to dial it in so that the bass is doing everything flat and honest and even, and it's pairing with the mid range and it's pairing with the treble and, um, it's all one coherent sound. It doesn't sound like a bunch of separate drivers, but it sounds like one pure, total connected sound from the deepest, the deepest lows to the highest highs. Um, and how does that? How, so this speaker is its own entity as far as the four mid-range, the fifty-inch by two and a quarter-inch treble mm -hmm. or tweeter, ribbon tweeter. Mm -hmm. But then you go to the subwoofers. So how does that come into yeah, play? So, and so, why is it detached? So the trade-off with open baffle is I said that if, if two things are moving together, you get reinforcement, and if yeah. they're moving opposite, you get cancellation. Well, right. that cancellation becomes more severe in the bass. So even though that looks like four giant woofers, their ability to reproduce deep bass, because you, know, you can't see the side of it from the camera angle, but it's just a box. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a box. It's a, it's a board. It's a really thick board with the back of the woofer um, opening into free air and the front of the yeah, woofer is all the speakers are exposed on the back. They're exposed, yeah. So the back of the speaker is just, you just see the magnets of all those cones, right? Mm -hmm. um, you lose deep bass. Yeah. So something like that looks like it should be able to kick out tons of bass, but the reality is when you get deep, deep down, uh, the 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 cancellation kills the bass. So How you, far in frequencies, how low can they go in frequencies? So the wider the board and the taller the board the deeper it can get in yeah. pitch right so because of the width of that and because of the height of that a, a speaker like that can can be good enough in terms of pitch but the reality is like if you buy a good set of near field monitors like like a like a like Genelex the, or something yeah Genelex with an 8 inch woofer, ported woofer in a in a box yeah that can technically hit pitches as deep as this giant speaker can hit mm -hmm. right this giant speaker will go a hundred times louder yeah. without distortion and will be able to hit like a like a you know it can it can reproduce for instance a gunshot at at a with a transient attack that sounds like a gunshot like literally will make you just kind of go like right? yeah um and that's something that a small speaker can't do because there's not enough surface area vibrating. But the trade-off on all that is no true deep, deep bass. You don't f you hear the bass, but you don't feel it. So something like that has to be paired with a set of big subwoofers. So behind each of these, I don't know if it's in the camera shot. But it's behind, not really in the camera shot. Behind each of these is a set is a a set of 18 inch subwoofers that is designed to sort of take over where these give out on the low end. So, and where so, would that be about for you on average? Um, Frequency-wise? Yeah, frequency-wise. Um, these, these big ones are playing down to 40 hertz, um, and then the sub takes over from 40 hertz on down. But there's some overlap. In other words, I'm allowing the slopes to be a little bit broader. So even though the crossover points 40 hertz, those 18-inch woofers are reaching up, and they're even, they have some output all the way up as high as like 80 to 100 hertz um, before you stop hearing them all together. And what do you do to mitigate the phase distortion between that crossover frequencies and the fact that they're not aligned with the speaker system? Um, the time alignment. So well, I, I, I simply measured 
the distance from the the four woofer column to the listener and then from the subwoofer which is farther back to the listener and that gives you the distance offset and you can't speed up sound in other words you can't make the the subs in the back move forward in time but you can make the speakers that are closer you can delay them and push them back in time. Mm -hmm. So essentially, I have a couple of feet of delay on these these speakers up front, and it and it timelines them with a sub. And then, if you want to to test to make sure that you've got it measured properly, what you can do is at the crossover frequency, you can just put a you can get a meter, read the volume at that frequency, and if they're in phase and supporting each other, then that you don't get a dip at that crossover point and yeah. if they're working against each other you'll get a dip right so what you do is you tweak that time alignment a couple of inches forward or backwards until you get the most volume at the crossover point and then you know you've got that in phase reinforcement mm. what happened here on the tv yeah i think uh the tv didn't get a signal change so <laughs> it decided it's okay yeah it's gonna go it's gonna power down a little bit you know, i can shut it off if, if you it's fine it doesn't matter to me yeah. it's funny though um that's another perk of having the control of the crossovers and the system behind the scenes instead of just a speaker you put in a room the fact that you can control the phase and the timing of the sub yeah that that time alignment is really important and there's time alignment going on between the woofer the subwoofer and those four woofers there's time alignment going on between those four woofers and that 50 inch ribbon and there's time alignment going on between that 50 inch ribbon and those three small circular super tweeters yeah and what's with the super tweeters if for those who are on uh listening there's little tiny tweeters in the speakers we're looking at and for those who are watching you might be able to see them what's going on with that um so the ribbon is an extraordinary transistor it's like one of the most beautiful like it's a work of art it's yeah. it's it's a membrane that's 50 inches tall and it vibrates uh in a linear fashion top to bottom so basically it's generating sound down low at the floor level and generating sound above your ears mm-hmm. in this this tall thin vertical line and for those listening sorry to cut you off that's really important because most of the time a speaker has the one inch tweeter and in, unless that's really at your ear level and pointed at you if you're anywhere else it doesn't sound quite the same you lose a lot of the high end even a little bit it rolls off because now you're off axis mm-hmm. but in this space you can be at any height yeah, within you, can, 50 you inches. can be on the floor or you can stand up and and, and you get the same balance. Yeah, and that's balance. that's a benefit, but that's not really the goal. I, I I'm not really trying to build speakers that have that. That's just a that's just it's what a cool happens. Perk. It's, it's a, a perk. Cool perk. Yeah. yeah. So so e- either way, a, the the smaller and lighter a diaphragm is, the higher a pitch it can achieve. The bigger and heavier a diaphragm is, the lower a pitch it can achieve. Mm-hmm. So that ribbon, even though it's this this glorious work of of high impact, high transient response, low distortion audio, it it's big enough to get down pretty low. It can get down to like 300 hertz, which is really that place where bass gives over to mid range, mm-hmm. and then it can get pretty high. But because it can get so low, there's enough mass to it that it can't get all the way out and above the human hearing spectrum. So, how high would you say they can go? It once you get to about fifteen thousand hertz, which is you know, it's it, you're 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 dealing with the very top octave of hearing at that point. It starts to roll off. So by the time you get to twenty thousand hertz, which is which is the theoretical upper limit of what most people with perfect ears can hear, um, you they're they're down. Right, so you can artificially boost the ribbon to try to make up for lost territory there, 
or um, and I've done that in the past, and it sounds okay. But then the ribbon's sort of like trying to do pitches that it's not optimally designed to do. Yeah, and you can you can introduce like harmonic distortions up high by doing that. Um, so these three sort of super tweeters that are that are in line, you know, vertically with that ribbon are optimized to play, you know, above 10,000 hertz all the way up to like twice human hearing. They can like go 40, up to like 40,000, 45,000. Yeah. Here. So like if you want to piss off some bats, these will do it. <laughs> Have you ever gotten your ears tested? Do you know what your hearing range is right now? Um, I haven't formally had them tested, but I, I do enough calibration where I'm listening to like tone sweeps and I start to stop hearing sound above 15,000 hertz. Like by the time it gets to 17,000, you know, I can feel it. I can feel my teeth itching, but I can't hear it with my ears anymore. Right. So, I get around 18. 18. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm, I'm what, three times your age, four times. No, no. Uh, I'm um, 50. And when, when I, when I hit maybe 40, I started to notice that I couldn't hear quite as high as I used to be able to hear. Um, you used a lot of power tools. I did. I used to use a lot of power tools. Did you protect tools, your hand when you but, did that? No, not, you know, we were, I was dumb and stupid in the 80s. And that's a factor, for yeah, sure. Yeah, and uh, that that's true. But one one thing that I that I didn't do, and that was attend a lot of loud live concerts without hearing protection. Yeah. And that's where that's what'll get you. Oh, yeah. That's what'll get you. I always wear my Sensophonic es- custom earplugs. Yeah, especially always. in the 70s and 80s <laughs> when um, there was less concern about getting sued. Right. Yeah. You know, now if you get hearing damage from going to a concert, you can sue, but it, it just really wasn't a thing. Um, I, I remember like a Who concert um, where uh, people left with their ears bleeding. Oh my God. Yeah. Right. And people used to wear that as a badge of honor. Yeah. Like, and they would like hang out up against the front mains. Oh. You know, they would like literally just be like as close to these giant speakers as possible that were literally pushing 140 decibels at the speaker, right? And mm-hmm. um and which is ridiculous. I because I was like my grandfather, um loud impacty sounds bothered me, you know. And so going to I was never a fan of live concerts mainly because it's a very rare live concert that sounds good to me because it's always just too reflective, too shrill, um and too loud. Um so I'm kind of a I'm 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 kind of a, a combination of snob and <laughs> and scaredy cat when it comes to really 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 loud music, um, because at some point, even even a design like I've been talking about where you try to ignore that you try to get it to ignore the room at some point the room just fills with too much sound whether it's a concert hall or a stadium yeah or a venue a live music venue at some mm-hmm. point there's so much reflective energy that it overwhelms and and live music almost always gets to that point where you're just hearing so much sound bouncing around that the delay and the echo um, kills enough of the original, you know, diction, for lack of a better word. Absolutely. That, you know, not just vocal diction, but the diction of the individual instruments and the individual notes Mm -hmm. and the individual attacks. That's why my favorite spots are usually smaller rooms, some acoustic protection, and... The right balance of a quiet crowd, but mm-hmm. their bodies are present to absorb reflection. Yeah, and not too and and not too loud, right? Yeah, I, I like it loud, loud, so it's exciting. But I don't I don't want it to be painful. And for me, music got painful before I noticed my friends were experiencing that pain. Right? Yeah. Um. So so, anyways, um, 
Or back to these tweeters. Yeah, back to, back to those tweeters. The high tweeters. They they just kind of take over and they fill in that final spectrum, and that's that's kind of important. Um, you said they cross over at ten thousand hertz. About yeah. So I'm letting the ribbon, the big ribbons, just kind of go all the way up and naturally roll off. I don't have a crossover on the top end okay. of the ribbons, and where they where they start to kind of give out, um, I'm allowing those tweeters to step those super tweeters to kind of like step in and just kind of extend it. And then you ask why, you know, like why Aaron, if you can only hear, you know, completely up to about 15,000 hertz and those rib, those big ribbons can go above 15,000 hertz, why would you care about generating audio above a spectrum of frequency that you, you're even capable of hearing? And that's a really, that's, that's a good question, right? The Thanks question for asking. <laughs> Thanks for asking, Ben. You thought it. I mean, I was asking, I was thinking it, you know. Yeah, so... <laughs> So it, it comes down to harmonic structure and harmonic reinforcement. So, you know, like it, if you have a clarinet play an A at 220 hertz and you have a trumpet play an A at 220 hertz and uh, a, a piccolo play an A at 220 hertz, I don't even know if piccolo can get that low. But, I don't think it can. <laughs> but so you've got, you've got three instruments all playing the same pitch, but they sound like a, a trumpet and, and a piccolo and, and – um, the, the difference is the harmonic structure. So what happens is every everything that naturally creates a sound will also have um, additional frequencies above that vibrating in sympathy with the original sound. So the loudest tone you're hearing is the note that you hear. But above that, um, every multiple of the frequency, so like twice the original pitch, three times the original pitch, four times, whole number integer multiples the original frequency all the way up above the human hearing spectrum – all the way up above, all the way through the mechanical energy spectrum up to about 100,000 hertz. So anything that you can hear has a harmonic spectrum above and is influencing that original note. So the, all the different harmonics that are created that vibrate um, in sympathy with the original sound, they're all working in complex ways to reinforce and cancel the, the timbre of the original sound to give it its unique sound. So like everything, you know, even two nearly identical violins have different harmonic structures, which give them kind of a unique fingerprint, right? So pitches that harmonics you can hear are impacting the fundamental note that you're hearing. Mm -hmm. Harmonics you can't hear are impacting harmonics you can hear, mm -hmm. which are impacting the funnel, the fundamental note that you're hearing. So it, you know, the ideal sound system would be microphones that could record up to 100,000 hertz, which is kind of where uh, vibration gives over from the uh, the mechanical energy spectrum to the electromagnetic energy spectrum. That's kind of where you where you go from. I might be wrong here, but that's that's where you go from ultrasound to maybe you know old school radio waves or something like that, yeah. right? So things you know, like suddenly instead of dealing with sound that's moving through a medium at the speed of sound, you're dealing with vibrations that are moving, you know, through the air at the speed of light, Correct. right? And yeah. you're no longer feeling it. It's no longer mechanical energy. It's right. Um, so when you have microphones, for instance, that are, that are listening to us, like these mics here, these are, these are roll off at maybe 20,000, 25,000 Hertz. Easily. Um, yes. Right. But build a mic that can go up to 100,000 hertz. So it's not just hearing us, but it's hearing everything above the frequencies that we're generating. Mm -hmm. And then build electronics or a digital a digital file format that can support pitches up that high. So Which they need, do. 
you'd need sampling rates of like 192. 192 would support that high. And then build electronics like analog circuits that could map 100,000 hertz on down. And then build speakers that could reproduce 100,000 hertz on down. And then you get back to me, the listener, who can only hear at 15,000 hertz on down. Well, everything I hear would be richer and more believable because of all this information above the audio spectrum. Mm -hmm. But you'd have to map all that accurately, and you'd have to map it all in phase, and you'd have to map it all and reproduce it all in ways that would be nearly impossible to control, mm -hmm. right? But In a perfect world. In a perfect <laughs> world. So even though I don't necessarily need these super tweeters to go up to 100,000 hertz, the fact that they can get above 20,000 hertz helps the big ribbon sound more complete and mm -hmm. the harmonic structure of the recordings, which is mapped accurately above 20,000 hertz, is getting back to me in a more honest way. Mm -hmm. And if things, you know, like a trumpet sounds more like a trumpet because that that metallic buzz on the bell coming out, you know, it just it just feels more vivid. It's you've you've mm -hmm. you've heard what these ribbons sound like. You heard before and then you've also heard with the addition of these super tweeters. Mm -hmm. There's just there's just a it's not like the treble's louder, and it's not like the treble has any more transient response impact. It's just it's just more coherent. Mm -hmm. right? I, I noticed a difference in one song in particular by the one I put on by Tommy Orkoff, Anemia, Anima, mm -hmm. um, Dawn Course, I believe the name is. I, I noticed this extra. I actually heard in that other that Daft Punk song I put on too. Yeah. There was two sounds I heard that I'd never heard before and I've listened to those songs a lot. So much so that I could pinpoint anything about them. And I heard some type of, it's almost hard to pinpoint for those listening. Once you get above 15,000 hertz, it's really hard to describe what that is and what it sounds mm -hmm. like, but it's a type of enrichment to to sound that can only be like kind of felt and experienced and not really put into words. It's very strange, but it adds a, a type of life. I always call it just life and, and enrichment of, of the experience to it. It adds quality, and then it affects the, the tones below it, the undertones below yeah, it, you know? You know, and I, I kind of, that that makes me want to talk, uh, that that steers me towards sort of a, something else that's really important to me, mm -hmm. is um, once you once you take out the room acoustics, being part of the signal path that you hear. And then, then you start to get these, these sound stages, these, the, the spatial properties in audio. And here's, here's something that really, that really is real for me. And that I, I started even very young to hear sounds as like physical objects. Mm. So sound to me is like a tangible physical object that you could almost like see touch feel the weight of it and and a good a good sound a good engineered recording puts different elements of the recording in physical space like a good like a good sculpture a good three-dimensional composition um, a, a physical design, right? Mm -hmm. So what, is it symmetrical? Is it asymmetrical? What kind of front-to-back depth is there? Is there low-to-high depth? Uh, are some instruments clearly in front of you floating in space with clearly defined edges? Are the, are the instruments murkier and farther back and, and kind of fuzzy? Are some sounds larger than life and some sounds really small and located in these very specific areas, right? So A certain balance. 
Yeah, certain yeah. bounds. So one one of the things I started to notice once I took the started to work with these dipole speakers where the room was no longer part of the signal path was that three-dimensional space started to become much more focused in these recordings. So where are things placed in the physical air uh, becomes more much more of a, a sculptural experience uh, because sounds to me are physical objects, right? So, like, for instance, when I'm working with students who are interested in engineering and music production, um, they're almost always entirely focused on frequency response, compression, EQing, volume mixing and balancing. And what I ask them to do right off the bat is to forget about all that first and focus on where they want individual elements of their arrangement, of the recordings located, and think and, and, like, approach their their engineering from a now let's say that you're a visual 3d sculptor and you're putting sound in physical space imagine where you want these elements you know you want your primary vocal front center and you know a bit a bit in front of maybe perhaps the instruments where do you want the different elements of the drum kit uh where do you want these keyboard beds or these strings or um, what, what do you, what do you want off to the sides? What do you want farther back? What do you want up front? What do you, what do you want low to high? And then I, I work with them and teach them techniques and how to place them like synthetically in recordings to sort of achieve that so that they're thinking about, um, the, the three dimensional spatial properties of the recording. And if they can get that right, then it almost always means that they've executed properly the volume uh, of each individual element in the recording starts to fall into place. It, it's it's already well mixed, and the, the 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 levels of compression on each element are probably close to being in place as well, because those three things are impacted by where you put things in space, and where you put things in space have to do with frequency response, uh, phase, uh, the amount of reverb that's on it, and uh, how much it's compressed, and those those all sort of impact things. So. Once, once I get students thinking that way, then I get them thinking about building sound systems and working with speakers and, and listening to audio as if it's a three-dimensional experience. Mm-hmm. So what's really important to me is not just taking the room out oh, sorry, bump the mic good. not just taking the room out of the signal path, but then maximizing what's you know that the the what's revealed is that 3d spatial information and um you can like there's a center channel in between these two speakers that i use for movies but when i'm just listening to music it's almost always just left channel left speaker right channel right speaker just traditional stereo signal but you can be depending on the recording utterly convinced that the center channel is on Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, it's like I have to walk up and put a pillow over the center channel to prove to people that it's not on because the spatial, the spatial illusion that sound is floating in the air is so convincing. Um, I, I've, you know, even though the speaker is identical floor to ceiling in terms of um, where sound comes out of it, some sounds can sound higher than and or lower than in the mix. Uh, some sounds can sound farther to the right of the right speaker and farther to the left Mm -hmm. of the left speaker. Some sounds can sound like they're coming from right in front of your face, like a foot away. And other sounds sound like they're coming from a hundred feet down the road. Yeah. And, um, there's that much front to back depth, left to right depth and, and top to bottom depth. And, um, so back to the super tweeters, 
one thing I noticed is that once I added those additional high-frequency drivers on there, the harmonic structure came into life. Uh, the, the, sh the sharpness of not the treble, but the three-dimensional boundaries of where objects were in space mm -hmm. became more clearly defined. So I was able to hear, like a trumpet would sound like it was over there, but with the additional high-frequency harmonic structure intact, that trumpet had a more specific position that was, that was more defined. So when you shut your mind, you could point at it and just like almost like reach out and grab it out it of the It does feel like you can grab the sound. Yeah. The intensity has been uh, like put under a magnifying glass. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's, it's very fascinating. Yeah, the sound can sound like it's coming further away as far as the panoramic view of it. And it has like, yeah, it has different depths to it. It's almost like 3D imaging, like the sound's being placed in different points. Instead of on this flat plane mm -hmm. where it's coming at you and you could tell in a normal room, even at, at my house, like, oh, that's coming from there, 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 across this plane. But here sometimes, yeah, it, it really does feel like it's just floating right in the dead center. Like it's like the speakers aren't on and sound is just hovering. Mm -hmm. It's very weird. <laughs> it's, yeah, and and that's that's my goal. Like yeah. what what I want to do as a sound designer and a audio engineer and a speaker designer is to maximize that that spatial three dimensional holographic information. Not in, and you can get there with surround sound. Like mm -hmm. you can you could you can get, you know, center channel and rear speakers and, and you can record in surround sound, engineer in surround sound, but play it back in a room. That's great. But I, I'm trying to do it with two speakers in a traditional stereo environment, um, you know, and since the vast majority of sources are still stereo, mm -hmm. you can either synthetically, artificially convert that into surround sound at the level of the file or the level of the source and then pipe it through like a home theater system. Or you can leave it in its original stereo format and extrude the most spatial information out of it that's possible out of a left speaker and a right speaker. And that's mm -hmm. that's kind of what I'm trying to do because I believe that's more faithful, you know, back to this sort of like sense of fidelity of the original recording. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, like I, I was saying earlier, I, I think just about anyone can build speakers that can go loud, have lots of bass, and not distort and most people stop there because that's good enough. Um, and they're, they're, it, then, then they're, and ninety nine percent of the folks out there um, will invest in that. You know, even even people who who are more critical and want the best sound, that's still the vast majority of speakers on the market. You can you can spend six hundred thousand dollars on a set of Wilson audio speakers, and they're essentially they're essentially cones in a box. Um, taken to a level of engineering and perfection that's further along than anyone else is doing it and they sound wonderful but they still charge the room and they still get the room involved in the sound and they're impossible for anybody to afford and they and you and <laughs> they're impossible for anyone you know maybe you know some people can afford it apparently multi-multi yeah. millionaires will buy that um that's about it but i can i can build a speaker that will spatially put something like that to shame, and I, and I don't, I don't want to sound like a competition, but we'll, we'll be more spatially convincing. Mm -hmm. I might not be able to get as loud or have as low a distortion as something like those really high-end Wilson audio speakers because they're they're just gorgeous, beautifully engineered, no holds barred, cost is no limit works of a art. A team of electrical engineers working yeah, behind a team, it. And, you know, and 
and it's they're they're like building Formula One racers, and yeah. they're extraordinary speakers. But I I can build something that has a more convincing soundstage for a one one hundredth the price for one <laughs> one thousand five hundredth the price. Yeah, right? yeah, way less. Yeah, for way less. It's basically some drivers in a board mm -hmm. calibrated to the nines so that they're as flat as possible. Mm -hmm. um, well, I want to segue. So you've you've went on about these super tweeters, right? Mm -hmm. And the ribbon tweeters and these mid-range four speakers are those 10 or 12s. Those are 12-inch woofers. 12-inch woofers and then to the 18 inches in the corner. Mm -hmm. Now, what about the 18 inches behind me? There's three 18s behind me. For those on the camera, I don't think you could see them. And for those listening, right behind me, there's three 18-inch speakers drilled into a wall or an old closet. Yeah, so... <clears throat> So that's the the system I have set up is also a home theater system. There's mm -hmm. a TV, a center channel, um, to the either side of the camera. There's rear channels set up, and there's smaller versions of open baffle designs like that big, like the big tall left and right main mm -hmm. speakers. Um, once you get into open, once you get into home theater surround sound, then you're talking about you know like five point one, six point one, seven point one. Uh, 10.2, the point one or the point two is referring to number of subs dedicated to an LFE channel or a low frequency effect channel. So when you go to a movie theater, there's, there is a, a, a channel of audio along with everything else that you hear that's dedicated to all the seismic, ultra deep, high impact, bassy, low pitch stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And um, the LFE channel is basically needing to just move a lot of air and be able to achieve very low, low pitches to, to generate like an authentic home theater experience. Um, so there's, there's a, if you put a woofer in a box, then the box itself becomes the limiting factor on how deep you can get. Right. Right. So if you put, you know, like all things being equal, if you put like a 12 inch woofer, in a small box, it might only get down to 60 hertz. And then as you increase the box size, you might be able to get it down to 50 hertz. And if you keep getting the box size bigger, you might be able to get it down to 40 hertz and 30 hertz. And, and eventually, if the box size is big enough, it's capable of supporting like resonant pitches and reinforced frequencies that the woofer is capable of doing. So the bigger the box in general, I mean, this is an oversimplification for, for you speaker designers out there. And you physicists out there, don't yell at me. But bigger, uh, bigger boxes will allow you to achieve deeper pitches out of the same cone. Right. Um, much like a trumpet versus a baritone versus a tuba. You know, yeah. throw a French horn in French there, horn, yeah. and you're essentially buzzing into a mouthpiece. And all you're talking about is longer tubes at a bigger diameter. So as you increase the size, the pitches that it can achieve are deeper. Correct. So. Yeah. Um, so Every box is essentially a low-cut filter. It's the same thing as essentially removing the deepest base from what the potential is of that driver, mm -hmm. right? Now, I'm not talking about how loud can it go or how much distortion it has. I'm simply talking about what low, what's the lowest pitch it can achieve. So there's a type of woofer design subwoofer design called infinite baffle and infinite baffle is this idea where the space behind the woofer is 
is so big that it's effectively as if there's no box behind it. It's just like free air. So an example of a, of a theoretically pure infinite baffle would be to have a house where you have a wall, an exterior wall. You cut a hole in that exterior wall, mount a woofer in it. The back of the woofer is firing out into space, out into free air, out, out near yard. So the, it's, it's like the world's biggest box. It's like the box is the world. Yeah. Right? The front of the woofer is firing into the room, but the wall is sealing off the back wave from the front wave. So there's no cancellation. There's no phase cancellation like these open baffles. I said the open baffle loses all its base because the back wave and the front wave recombine out of phase. Well, mm -hmm. you don't get that with infinite baffle. The back wave just goes its merry way in one direction, never couples with the front wave. And as a result of that, the same size driver is, is capable of getting deeper. Mm -hmm. So if you have a big woofer that has a lot of mass and the potential for deep frequencies, and you put it in a small box, it's going to be meh, right? And you put it in a really, really big box, and suddenly it's like, well, that's a lot of deep bass. And then you put it in an infinite baffle environment, then suddenly you're like, that's extraordinarily low <laughs> I've never heard anything like it. Extraordinarily what, yeah. low pitches. Yeah. You can get like a, an 18-inch woofer. So what's behind Ben, for those of you who can't see it, is what used to be uh, a, a plumber's closet or a, 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 a main, like a wet closet, where the upstairs um, sink and shower and bath and toiletry works itself into a main um a main PVC pipe, which runs from the upstairs through that closet and into the the foundation and it drains and it goes out the, the house, right? Mm -hmm. So I have this useless closet. You open the door and there's just a piece of, P, there's a PVC pipe right in the middle. It's, you can't store things in there. Uh, there. You can't put shelves in there. It's just stupid. So, <laughs> but it's an oversized closet. It's like four feet wide and seven feet tall and three feet deep, right? Mm -hmm. And what that basically is, is a huge, huge speaker cabinet, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. I, took, I took the door off um, and I mounted a panel. I built an extra thick flange in the door frame and mounted a, a, a board in there, cut three holes out. And I mounted three 18-inch woofers in it. And the front wave fires into the listening room. And the back wave fires into this closet. And I just, I lined the closet with four inch thick upholstery foam all the way around. Um, and it's about 10,000 liters, you know. And what it's, it's like a, just the biggest subwoofer box imaginable. And it's big enough to approach the theoretical, you know, maximum returns of infinite baffle, mm -hmm. right? So even though you don't need a true infinite baffle to, for a woofer, to achieve its deep, its deepest potential pitches, you just need a really, really, really big box. Yeah. So all I did was just, you know, bolted on this board the size of a door to what used to be um, a useless closet on the side of my listening room where the door just always stayed shut anyways. And it's now it's now the LFE channel for the home theater system. And how low can that get in frequencies? Well, human hearing can hear pitches down to about 20 hertz. Uh, but this, the, it's hard to tell exactly what it's doing because measuring, you know, like RTAs and measuring um, calibration software and hardware and microphones 
don't do very good below 20 hertz, but it's it's showing that is that there's infer there's there's tangible information coming out of it at 10 hertz. Yeah. Um, so I they can get the closet can get about an octave below human hearing. Um, I've got like tone generators and software, and I'm able to like send it a 20 hertz tone, and then a 15 hertz tone and a 10 hertz tone, and you can you can feel it charging the room at 10 hertz. Not as loud, you know. It starts to run out of gas down that low, but it's that's uh, incredible though. It's extraordinarily deep bass. So certain certain songs like i can i can throw the subs into the signal path of music uh not just for films but mm-hmm. certain songs uh become laughable because engineers often don't know how much low frequency information they're mixing into music so even even if your subs are set up and calibrated flat and they're not exaggerating what they're receiving um, they're still hitting pitches that are lower than normal speakers can achieve. And it's it's not uncommon to hear something somebody mixed that they had no idea that they were feeding information into the system like below 25 hertz, which is well below what most speakers are capable of achieving. Mm-hmm. So why would they know, right? Yeah, th- so they can't hear what they're doing and they didn't use, you know, they didn't use uh, low cuts in their engineering process and and suddenly you're listening to music and the whole you know like certain notes or certain instruments will make the room just go seismic where you mm-hmm. it feels like a train is going by uh and it happened earlier with that Janelle Monet song the Janelle Monet song yeah yeah uh screwed yeah has pitches in it that are so low that you can, you can only you you almost can't hear it but you can feel it yeah my my uh, stomach my abs my chest was kind of just kind of moving. Yeah, and it's all movement. And it's not about volume. Like you, you can feel it even, even down. It, it's not about boosted bass or how loud are you listening. Even at moderate, you know, like just kind of relaxed listening levels, you can still. You're like, what the, what the hell is going on? Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, it's it's the kind of thing that'll make my my puppy kind of stand up and look around. Mm-hmm. Like I don't understand what's happening. Right. Um, and there's other recordings like uh, uh, Blake. What's his first name? James Blake. James Blake has got a lot of stuff on on some of his uh, work where the en- the engineers are just allowing just like prodigious amounts of ultra low frequency to mm-hmm. get through that you that I I never heard over normal speakers, even speakers that were like full range with normal subs on. But once these infinite baffles are in the signal path, you're getting information that's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's fun, but at the same time, it, it it's distracting too. And what's 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 interesting about it is if the engineer knew that that ultra deep subsonic sub you know like ultrasonic sub, ultra ultra bass yeah stuff was in there, if they just filtered it out, then only me and a handful of other listeners on a planet would would miss it but everyone else's bass would improve. Yeah. Because when you have like a normal set of speakers receiving that information, it just makes the woofers go out of control. They can't achieve the pitches. The amount of distortion goes up in the mix exponentially. Mm -hmm. But if you had a low cut taking out that information that their speakers aren't going to reproduce anyways, then everything else that's left becomes, you know, a lot more audible. So what would you suggest? 
take out everything below 25? Well, if I, if I was an engineer and I was just m- mixing anything, kick drum, bass guitar, keyboards with a lot of low end, some sort of exotic instrument with a lot of low end, whatever it is, I would, I would pretty much put like an FFT filter low cut or, a, or a, just a, any, any general like brick wall low cut below like 25 hertz in there. I don't, there's just, it, you're not going to need those frequencies. Most people don't have equipment and or sound systems that can get that low. Right. I mean, what, what a lot of people think of as deep bass is typically 60 to 80 hertz, but there's a whole spectrum of bass below that that becomes hard to hear in terms of pitch, but you can feel it. Yeah. You know, and that's the from 40 hertz on down. Uh, you're, you're talking like pipe organ large cathedral mm-hmm. territory where you're just sitting there and your whole body just becomes charged with with vibrating. Right. I mean, on average, the human the human ear can't even recognize pitch below 35. They can recognize frequencies. You can mm-hmm. feel them. You can but feel as far them, as knowing what pitch it is, doesn't hear it, yeah. like knowing a, a 27 and a half hertz A, you don't know that that's 27 and a half hertz. You just, you're hitting a sound, you feel something, but you can't actually yeah. recognize it's, its It's pitch. a very seismic experience. It's, exactly. It's great if you've got speakers that can reproduce it without distortion because it's it mechanically couples you to the music. But sure. if you're listening to like synth- synthetic music where it doesn't really need to be there, it's below the spectrum of instruments. Yeah. And it just becomes a seismic event. So it's kind of funny. You know, it's, it's great to have that kind of information, but I, I oftentimes think I should just throw a low cut electronically in the path of these speaker of these infinite baffle subs just to filter out everything below 20 hertz because there's nothing down there that's meant to be there that's mm-hmm. controlled. I bet you it would make a seismograph machine down the street go off. <laughs> it, yeah, and again, we're not talking loud. <laughs> no, it's not. It's just unbelievably low pitches. It, the frequencies are so big. I mean, we're talking 100-foot waves yeah, just, wrapping around you yeah. and compressing you. And you know. and the, the room, even though the room technically can't support hearing those pitches, you still feel it. Like you feel it, it. It makes your your whole body like it. Uh, it I, I, the other day, I, my pant legs were vibrating. Like later, I had some jeans on, and they were just kind of flapping back and mm-hmm. forth. And again, not loud, just mm-hmm. so stupidly low that it was like moving fabric around in the room. What happens? Have you ever turned it up pretty loud and tried it? Y- yeah, the, this room's too. This room's too small to support that deep bass um, at that at at volume. Like yeah. once you get above like eighty five decibels, uh, the room I'm in below twenty hertz becomes a rattle box. Yeah, um, it's a good it's a great room. I mean, I've got like really good ceiling tile with a very high NRC. The ceiling tile is like an inch thick, and each one each two by two panel weighs like five pounds. There's there's probably a thousand pounds of ceiling tile above our heads right now. Scary. Yeah, if it, if it ever fell and hit you, you'd, it'd be bad. But <laughs> there, it's an it's incredibly high end sound quality ceiling. It's it's a concrete floor with padding, relatively thick carpet, cinder block walls with um, stud walls over that that are heavily insulated, and then the stuff called um, dense armor. Uh, and dense armor is a kind of um, drywall that's twice as heavy as regular drywall and it's got a mesh fiberglass surface instead of a paper surface Mm -hmm. so it's both heavy in mass and it doesn't reflect sound the way regular drywall reflects sound yeah and all that means that i have a really tight clean 
room, audio room. Like I yeah. built it from the ground up. And um, when I get loud with that infinite baffle uh, and it hits pitches below 20 hertz, uh, the ceiling tiles literally are lifting up out of their out of their. So you're talking about a five pound object is moving that are, up and that down. are fl- that yeah. are fluffing. You know the, those that column of woofers moves in and out, and the ceiling tiles move up and With down. The pressure wave, yeah. Yeah, and dust starts to come out of the ceiling, and the and the light bulbs start to flicker. Oh my And God. because they're getting the filaments are getting shook, right? Yeah, yeah. Um. So and <laughs> and it's again, it sounds like sort of American male, you know, male syndrome taken too far. But it's it's not about how loud I can get. It's about trying to design something that can map frequencies that is that most people don't really get to experience. Right. I mean, all in all, your full range system, not completely flat, but essentially can get from ten hertz to forty thousand hertz. Fairly accurately, yeah. which is significantly more than any other system. Yeah, I've ever and heard of. and here's the crazy thing. Most people who listen to my system, the first response is, "Where's the bass?" Mm-hmm. Right? Like, mm-hmm. why? Why am I not? Why am I not getting hammered by bass? Yeah, and that's because honestly, most recordings don't have a ton of bass, right? Mm-hmm. Until you're getting into like high end hip hop and dubstep and electronic music, right. where they're really controlling and focusing ultra deep bass. You know, most most mixes have like, for instance, a kick drum and a bass guitar aren't any louder than the vocals and the snare drum and the melodic mm-hmm. instruments and, and yeah. everything else, right? So if your system is set up accurately and it's calibrated flat, and again, this here's this idea of high fidelity where you just want to hear exactly what the recording's doing, then on recordings that are rationally normal and well-balanced, there's not a ton of high-volume, high-impact, ultra-deep bass. So when there are songs like Janelle is Screwed, where uh, like the bridges in that song have just it just it's like there's the normal song and then there's these, these like moments where suddenly there's this whole additional dimension of deep bass. Um, then you can hear it, and then you're like, "That's a lot of bass. That's ridiculous." Mm-hmm. But uh, other songs, like if you know, like you put on. A Beatles song. A Beatles song, <laughs> and you listen to it, it it will sound very neutral without any additional fluff in the, in the low end. Mm-hmm. So people, when they when they look at these big speakers and they look at the subs that are kind of around the room, their first thought should be, there's going to be a ton of bass here, um, but the, everything is is dialed in so that it's really efficient and the attacks are there, so like the the impact of things are very immediate and believable, but the total volume of bass isn't boosted mm-hmm. compared to everything else. So yeah. I'm I'm a big fan of flat. I I do enough sound design work and audio engineering work that I use this as like my main rig to to mix and produce content. And if I was um, exaggerating the bass, then everything I produced would be bass shy. Mm-hmm. Because if the whole system was extra bassy, then while I'm mixing, I would be turning down the bass because I'm hearing so much bass, and then everyone else would be getting a content for me that was bass shy. Right. For those listening who don't know what flat means in the uh, sound and audio world, it's from the lowest end of human hearing, about 20 hertz, to the highest end, 20,000 hertz. 
the frequencies are not being attenuated, which means subtracted or, or brought down in volume, or they're not being boosted, which means adding volume across that spectrum. That means you're trying to keep an equal balance across all of them. So your system and the way you have it laid out inherently is that way. And it is, it is a learning curve. It is a listening curve. It's very different. Most systems uh, pronounce that. They enunciate low mm-hmm. frequencies. It's, we talked about that earlier. It kind of comes with, it's almost psychologically synonymous with quality when you feel a lot of bass and you mm-hmm. feel a lot of power there. It's a, a kind of an obsession we have. And it's, it, as we m- mentioned um, before, maybe not even on this podcast, but in our conversation earlier today, that that's kind of like a byproduct of the American uh, music. Pushing, pushing things, yeah. yeah. So, so there's this audiophile perspective where ec- extra bass is actually kind of, for a lot of people, it's actually kind of a thing to avoid, even to a fault, even to a point where if you're on the fence of if if this is neutral, I, I know folks who are kind of purists who will actually turn the bass down just to avoid the perception of of juicing, <laughs> yeah, of juicing the bass, right? Yeah. But if you're if you're in a club or you're listening to a concert or you're um, trying to entertain, most people are hearing the bass boosted quite a bit. For instance, um, if you go to a concert, you're you're getting typically um, 10 to 15 decibels of additional low frequency and mid bass information than 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 a flat system would deliver, right? right? And it makes things more exciting. You can feel it. The thing about mid-range and treble is you can hear it, but you don't feel it unless you're really sensitive to sound. You don't feel it with your body Mm -hmm. um, because the wavelengths are small in relationship to your body. But bass, the wavelengths are as big or bigger than your body, Mm -hmm. right? So you mechanically feel bass. You feel it vibrate through your body and you hear bass, right? Yeah. And this physical, tactile sense of being coupled with the sound is very appealing. Um, it's so you it, feel in your bones with bone induction. You feel it in your brain. Yeah, you, you, know? sympa- you you have a sympathetic physiological connection exactly. with what you're hearing, and the music is is hitting you. I was I was teasing Ben earlier. I said, "When's the last time you've heard of or seen a riot at a at a classical, acoustic, you know, acoustic classical concert?" <laughs> and he's like, "Never." And I was like. When, you know, but if you go to an electronic or, uh, concert where there's electronic reproduction of sound, then fights can break out and and mosh action, m- more aggressive actions, more, more aggressive actions. People get hyped up; they get super stimulated. It's because the amount of concentrated, sustained, ultra low bass information is 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 being driven into the crowd, and it gets it gets your heart rate up, it gets your respiration rate up. Um, and it's it's a stimulant, and you can get people to just you know people just go berserk under under <laughs> yeah. those circumstances if there's triggers, if there are things there that that are causing stress. That plus all of that base energy really amps up a person. Um, but if you listen to, for instance, even though there are instruments that can get deep in a classical environment, um, you you don't have the amount of continuous, sustained deep bass and driving rhythm and impact that's really loud. It's much more balanced and it's much more mid-range and treble-centric, right? So um, so there's this, there's this in particular kind of like an, like an American addiction to bass. I think it's spread to Japan and Germany first and then it's kind of found, it's found its way back to England again. Um, but there, for a while there was um, 
it it seemed like the Americans were going bonko with exaggerated bass more than any any other culture that I, that I, that I was exposed to that I was seeing and hearing like what they were engineering in their mixes and and what the clubs are doing. Um, n- now it's everywhere, but yeah. you know back in the '60s and '70s and '80s and '90s, I think it was it, it took a while for that proliferation, but we. I, I think there's maybe, you know, I think there's something in the U.S. about taking something to an extreme, just taking it further um, and pushing the, the limits. And and uh, I, it's in our culture right now. So you're right. It's a more base and exaggerated base. This is synonymous with quality uh, for a lot of people. But if you take on this sort of like audiophile purist kind of goal, then exaggerated bass is the enemy. It's an affirmative, yeah. right? It's, it's arch nemesis. It's the thing that you try to avoid. And it's really dangerous to like, like in creative technologies, I'm, I'm working with a lot of students who are, who are generating, uh, audio content, either as an engineer or a composer or a designer. And, um, they're working on highly biased equipment. They're working on, you know, headphones that are exaggerating bass. So they're, they're working on laptop speakers that don't have any bass, or they're working on home stereo speakers that have too much, you know, so if you can get a really flat system that is neutral, that's not exaggerating or de-emphasizing any frequency from bass to mid range to treble, then what you're creating you have a chance, you have a more accurate tool to assess what you're creating, mm-hmm. right? And you you can tell what you're putting into the mix. Um, but, you know, I was, I was as we were talking earlier today, um, most people are comfortable with the amount of mid-range that's actually present in a song. They don't really juice the mid-range. Uh, and most people are comfortable with the amount of treble that's present in music. They don't, you know, you don't see a lot of people really, really zinging the treble because if you do in those frequencies, it becomes harsh and brittle and sound becomes just hard to listen to. Mm-hmm. But um, the vast majority of people prefer an exaggerated bass. It's, you know, there's a lot of commercial speaker designs that that hype it up just straight up. Um, for instance, um, if, if you put someone in front of like a million dollar best speaker design system in the world in a, in a perfect room and you played them a truly flat recording of something and then you went and bought a $200 set of box speakers that were that were fluffing the bass and zinging maybe zinging the treble a little bit and it was an inaccurate reproduction mm-hmm. and you played them side by side first impressions 98% of the people if money was no object would prefer the the, the exaggerated bass yeah right and that would be the more attractive commercial product um beats by dre yeah yeah i mean the, the the headphones they sound they're great uh and they're it's a good product and they know exactly what they're doing uh but you know people who are working with those are hearing bass exaggerated considerably over what's actually in the content and as a result of that uh it's more exciting and fun and entertaining to listen to but if you're an engineer and you're mixing with those with the bass boost on you have no idea how much actual bass you're actually working with right. because you're getting such you're getting such a, a bias in in what you're hearing your own work sound like. Yeah. Um, so both as an engineer, I need n- neutrality and and flatness. And as an audio file, I prefer not 
um, not adding extra base to things. So all all of these woofers and all of the scale and everything mm -hmm. doesn't translate into it sounds like there's a lot of bass. Right. Right. But it's great that you have the control to add that or take away if you yeah, want to. Yeah, it's very easy. I mean, it's it's easy to just to just boost um, the the big woofers so that they're just they're they're playing louder than they normally would. Mm -hmm. And I'll do that for some movies and I'll do that for some music some of the time. But then. Uh, like when my friends go away, <laughs> when I leave, when you leave, yeah. I'll, I'll probably set it back to yeah. uh, a more neutral place, mainly because I'll also in any given day, I might be working with like a classical recording or yeah. I might be working with a sound design where I'm building like explosions and a battle scene in the background. Yeah. And, and I need to know where I'm at. It's good to have the option. Yeah. And it's especially fun for movies. You yes. Know, an action flick with a bunch of just crazy explosions and low frequencies. It's fun mm -hmm. to boost the Yeah, load, I mean know? if you're in the, if you're in the thick of a high intensity scene, you want you want it to you want to be coupled to to the sound design. Mm -hmm. You don't you don't want it just to be an, an audio experience, but you want it to be at this physical you want to get beat up, you know. Um, yeah. Well, is there anything about these speakers you wanna promote before we go off air? Do you want do you wanna promote anything about where people can find this, if you want to, if people can reach out to you to build them, if, if that's what you're doing. If not, that's fine. But um, just thought I'd take that moment to do that. Well, I guess this this is probably the most dangerous thing a person, an idiot, can say. But I I guess I'd what I'd like anyone who's not a psychopath to to do is if, if you know if is uh, consider giving them a listen. You know, like I I have people over and we just we just sit down and listen to music, right? Mm -hmm. Just because. That's that's the thing I like to do. So I I think just being able to hear them would be would would be an experience. Mm -hmm. um, I I'd be I I'm not a business. I kind of do this for myself. It translates into a personal hobby. That's gonna that ends up informing what I do as an engineer as, right. as a sound designer, which is where kind of like my professional work is, and it helps me teach acoustics sure. and speaker design to students. Um, so I don't really have a product, but if 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 someone wants to engage me to to talk about building a custom system for them mm -hmm. um i'd be interested in that conversation it's just that i have trouble promoting i have the trouble with the notion of promoting to you you should spend money on me for this unless you hear it yourself and know what you're getting into sure um yeah. so I, I guess I'd want people to to hear it, and since it's only at my house, it's like, hey, everyone out there, strangers, do not come, just come by, <laughs> come on, yeah, just knock on my door. Well, uh, that could be weird. In the future, if anybody wants something built who has the, the knowledge of what we're talking mm -hmm. about and the money, they can reach out to Aaron. Yeah, at ISU. <laughs> yeah, or in the creative technology. Or department. do you have a? Do you get feedback at all? Like any kind of online feedback on your podcast? Mostly just from people who listen through on, on like they'll text me message me email me yeah stuff so like that. If, if anyone reaches out to you and they I'll want to send start up con yeah, send me their contact information I'd, I'd be glad to have a conversation um i could provide advice and or just you know talk about things if you're in the area and it's not a nightmare scenario and you could be we could become you know buddies and listen to music together. if you're obsessed with sound yeah well aaron thank you for being very elaborate with all that and explaining everything it helped me i knew most of what you're saying but it helped to reiterate stuff, and I learned a lot. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And I'm sure there's some people out there who have 
no idea what we're talking about, especially what you're talking about, but they can go further with it. And if anybody's a music listener, uh, someone who's in the sound, sound design, sound art, audio production, um, speakers like this are uh, profound. They're amazing. They kind of make everything else dull and rolled off in every way, shape, or form. But um, yeah, they are a certain palette. They're a certain style. But uh, thank you for sharing that and sharing the space with me for all these years and letting me come here to listen. It's a, it's a treat. Yeah. It makes it worth being here. And um, thank you for sharing that knowledge and all 50 years of experience with sound and tinkering with stuff and sharing it with the world. So thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Ben. No problem. All right. Well, bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. All right.